Tonight we are going to be in Genesis chapter 42. I'm going to trend towards this way because I recognize these faces. Um, We're going to be in Genesis 42, and we're going to go through all 38 verses. And as we do, the first 28 verses, we're going to go through pretty rapidly. Um, And then we're going to slow down and we're going to zoom in from verse 29 on. But looking at our culture today, much of our culture lives according to the doctrine of relativism. Truth under relativism is always dependent on some outside frame of reference, whether it's the culture that we grew up in, whether it's the experiences that we've had, or whether it is the socioeconomic class that we grew up in, relativism always requires a worldview from some outside framework that impacts us. And the doctrine of relativism claims that we cannot know absolute truth which is an absolute truth in itself, and we're not going to get into that tonight. But relativism says that there is no such thing as absolute truth. But Ecclesiastes 1.9 says this. That's what... I'm going to slow down a little bit. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. The doctrine of relativism is not a new idea. It is not the product of an advanced civilization that has been freed from the ideas of the past. It is the reworking of an ancient lie. Ancient philosophers argued this same doctrine when they looked at the issue, they looked at the illusion of the bent oar. And when part of an oar, go ahead and put that picture up, Dan. And when part of an oar is in water, it appears to be bent. Now, I am under no impression that that looks like an oar, okay? But when you search the internet, you think you would find a picture of a bent oar, and you can't. So you get a pencil, but the illusion is the same, the concept is the same. So when a pencil or a bent oar is in water, it appears to be bent. So ancient philosophers concluded that we cannot know truth or trust our senses since there is often disagreement between the appearance and the reality of an object. Therefore, truth is relative to our circumstances. Truth is relative to our angle and our perspective of an item. But in the fourth century, Christian philosopher Augustine said this, and I'll summarize. Whatever the eye sees, it truly sees. Does the oar look bent when it is submerged in water? Yes, it does. I would think that there was something wrong if the oar, when dipped in water, appeared straight, since the conditions for it appearing bent exist. While other ancient philosophers appeared to address the issue from a matter of perspective and perception of the object, Augustine approached the issue through the lens of truth. He understood that when truth is applied in the case of the law of refraction, that it is going to appear bent because light responds differently in water and air. So great. What a wonderful story. What does that have to do with Genesis 42? Well, listen to the question that I hear most often that challenges us as Christians. 
You've heard it too, and so bear with me for a second. If God is so good, why do bad things happen to good people? Ever heard that question? If God is so loving, why is there so much suffering in the world? These questions are not unique. They're common questions. But if you'll notice, both questions don't come from the perspective of truth. They come from the angle of perception, assuming that the goodness of God is conditional on some aspect within his creation. If God is so good, why is there so much suffering? Conditional on the fact that since suffering exists, that God is not good. But if we look through the lens of truth, the existence of suffering becomes much clearer. Romans 5 and 12 says this, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. When truth is applied, in this case the law of sin and death, we truly understand what's happening. It's not that God is bad. It's not that God is not good because they're suffering, but it's the existence of sin that refracts our understanding and it causes us to see God in a way that is inaccurate of who he is. It causes us to see creation through the lens of sin and not through God. So as we work through our text today, I want to encourage each of us to look at a few things. One, at your personal circumstances. We all come in from a different place today. Some of us are encouraged and motivated. Some of us are walking in the way to the world. I would ask us, that we view our circumstances, circumstances through the lens of truth and not under our own perception. The lens that says that God is still sovereign and good, even in the midst of tremendous suffering. That the lens that he is the one who knows the beginning from the end and he is working all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. To quote Eric's Twitter, I just happened to run across it on Friday. He said this last Saturday, having a clear view of heaven puts this life into focus. It's only when we see this life through the lens of truth, through eternal truth, that this life becomes clear. So let's pray and then we'll get into the text together. Father God, Lord, we thank you for tonight that we can get into your word that we can worship you, that we can gather as one body and fellowship with one another. God, each of us comes from a different circumstance tonight, and I just pray that you would meet every heart, every need tonight, that you would be the God of all comfort and meet us in that place. Lord, that you would call each of us to respond and be doers of the word. And uh, Lord, we give it to you. We invite your Holy Spirit to move mightily. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, first 28 verses, we're going to go rather quickly, and then we'll settle down and zoom in on verses 29 through the end. Verse 1, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. 
But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. In Genesis 41, God showed Pharaoh in a dream what he was about to do. And interpreted through Joseph, he saw that there were going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to get food. All of his sons except Benjamin. And I make the assumption that he's not sending Benjamin because Joseph and Benjamin are the only two sons of Rachel, Jacob's beloved Rachel, who has now passed on. He's under the impression that Joseph is dead. We know he's not. And so he's not willing to send Benjamin as well to lose his last link to his beloved wife. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land and it was... And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, your spies... You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. Joseph was hated by his brothers. And Joseph was hated for two reasons. One, Jacob loved Joseph above all of his children. And he gave him this coat of many colors. And this caused much hatred for Joseph. But the second reason is he had a dream. And in the dream, his brothers and his parents would bow down to him. And now, as his brothers are in Egypt, they are bowing their faces to the earth. And Joseph is beginning to see God's sovereign hand. Joseph was sold into slavery years earlier. Joseph was arrested and he spent years in prison. And now he's rose, risen to second in command in Pharaoh's court. And now he sees God's sovereign hand starting to move in the lives of his brothers. It would be difficult for Joseph's brothers to recognize him. When he was 17 is when they sold him to slavery. We're now, he's now 39. It's been 22 years. He would be dressed like an Egyptian. He would have a shaved face and head like an Egyptian. He would wear the clothes of an Egyptian. And they would still be dressed as Hebrews. So, and he would be speaking to them through an interpreter. So they wouldn't even be speaking the same language. Verse 11. We are all one man's son. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No. But you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. 
and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Wrong person for Joseph's brothers to be making the claim. We're honest men. We're good people. We're honest men. But Joseph would know amongst anybody else what is the character of his brothers. What had they done to him is the very thing he's carrying. And so Joseph tests them. And he's listening to the things that they're saying. And they're speaking truth. They say we are the sons, all the sons of one man. It's true. Joseph would know. We have a brother at home that is not with us. Joseph would know. And one is no more. God is bringing Joseph's brothers to a place of repentance. And Joseph is testing his brothers in this. God desires reconciliation in our relationships. He knows, because sin exists in this world, that the relationships between us and our Heavenly Father have been fractured. He knows that the relationships between one another within our own communities, within our own families, are strained. And he desires this work of reconciliation. It was so that we could be reconciled to the Father that he sent his only son to pay the penalty for sin on your and my behalf. But reconciliation requires repentance. It requires a change of direction. It requires turning from sin, confessing and admitting where we're wrong before, before a holy and just God. Joseph is testing the honesty and sincerity of his brothers. By asking them to bring Benjamin back, he is asking them to demonstrate their integrity. Reconciliation between people takes time. Although scripture commands us to forgive one another, and it does command us to forgive one another, you will not find in scripture where it says, forget the offense. We can choose to forgive, but forgetting is not something that we do easily. And Joseph has, Joseph has certainly not forget, forgotten the wrong that they have done to him. And so he tests them. And he's beginning to see the change as they're honest with him. They offer, notice he didn't ask for the information. They're offering it forth. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, speaking of Joseph. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Although it has taken 22 years, Joseph's brothers are beginning, and we see in verse 22, 21, they are beginning to accept responsibility for their part. We know they haven't. Their father, Jacob, back in Canaan, still doesn't know. They're still pleading on this honest men, uh, as, them, they're as honest men, For their actions towards their brother, though, they're accepting responsibility. Verse 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, the very thing that his brothers came for. 
to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Despite the harshness of Joseph's words, he's caring for his family. He puts their grain in their sack, the very thing that they had come from to sustain their families back home. He also puts their money back in their bag, unbeknownst to his brothers. But if you look, he also puts provisions for the journey. Joseph acts in a manner consistent with their good. Now, this is where we're going to slow down. We're going to zoom in on the text a little more, starting in verse 29. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Verse 29 tells us that they went to Jacob, their father, and they told him everything that had happened. And they did. Almost. They went to their father, and they told him everything. Kind of. You see, they shared all that happened. They shared what the man did to them, how he was harsh to them, how he spoke rudely to him, and how they had to prove themselves. But what they failed to mention is that they had found their money in their bag. Their conscience was again stoked. If we look back at verse 28, it says that their guilt, well, it says, what is this that God has done to us? Exclaiming that they understand their guilt concerning their brother. They look at their bag and they're afraid, but they haven't shared this with Jacob. They haven't shared everything with him. This is often the case when we harbor guilt over something, isn't it? When we're carrying around sin, when we're carrying around guilt or we're trying to suppress it, we, el- we tend to elevate ourselves. We are honest. We are good men. We told him this and we diminish others. He was harsh to us. He did not make us feel good. And this is what they are wrestling with. They're wrestling under the weight of their own sin. But we know through verse 28 that their guilt is eating them up. They understand that nothing is hidden from God. God who brings every work into judgment, including every secret thing, every good and evil. Verse 35. Then it happened... As they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Now they find money in every sack. Not just in the one man's sack, as in verse 28, but in everyone. And I assume that they were silent 
about finding money in the one bag because it could have been a mistake. Perhaps the Egyptians overlooked one of the bags of money or the, and put it in with the grain. But with 10 brothers, it would be impossible to overlook every sack. When they find the money in each man's sack, their claim of being honest men will be rejected. Surely the governor's suspicion of them of being spies will be confirmed, and now he'll accuse them of being thieves as well. They have every right to be fearful. Even though they are innocent, they don't have to convince themselves of their innocence. They have to convince the governor in Egypt. Jacob sees the money along with the grain too, and he is moved to a place of overwhelming grief and despair. And this is where I want to focus in. Wow, jump to the beginning. Sorry. (laughs) So verse 36. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Jacob makes an accusing rebuke of his sons. You can sense the anguish in his tone. You have bereaved me. You, speaking to his children, have caused the death of my children. Joseph is no more because of you. Simeon is no more because of you. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Everything is against me. We rarely see or understand what God is doing through that which we can perceive with our senses. We rarely see and understand what God is doing beneath the surface in a man's heart. And Jacob in this moment, is seeing only with his pain. He's seeing only with his suffering. He's not looking at the fact that God remains sovereign, that God is still on the throne, that he still guides and cares for his people. He's only seeing his grief and his pain. And this is the greatest struggle for us as Christians, to walk by faith and not by sight. To walk according to what we know is true and not according to the circumstances that we face. In this moment, Jacob is responding in grief, looking through the lens of his perception of the situation. He's not looking through the lens of truth, he's looking through this lens of perception. He has forgotten the promises of God to his fathers to the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, that I will make your, your descendants more numerous than the stars. He's forgotten of God's promise that he's going to bring all of his chosen people into the land of promise. All he can see is lost. Joseph, my son, is no more. Simeon is no more. Everything is against me. And as we examine the evidence that Jacob is examining, 
How can we blame him for drawing the conclusion that he does? Is his conclusion unreasonable? I would say no. Joseph is no more. Joseph has been gone and not heard of for 22 years. And the same brothers that are here in front of him presenting the evidence from Egypt are the same brothers that testified that they found his coat bloody in the wilderness. They also provided this physical evidence to Jacob. Simeon is no more. The same brothers who bore witness of Joseph's death bear witness of a cruel governor, one who doesn't trust them and accuses them of being spies and takes their brother Simeon and holds him as collateral until they bring the youngest back to them. And now... Jacob sees the bags of grain that were sent, the bags of money that were sent to purchase grain. And it's all in the bag. Jacob is walking by sight. And who could blame him? His circumstances are being defined solely upon his perception without regard for, regard for the sovereignty, for the providence or promises of God. But the truth is, in Jacob's moment of great anguish, in this very moment of great pain and suffering, his perception of the situation could not be any more wrong. Joseph is no more. That's not true. Joseph is not dead. Joseph is no longer a slave. Joseph is not in prison Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt. He's thriving. Simeon is no more. Well, that's not true. Simeon could be in no safer place, but in the protection of the second in command of all of Egypt, his brother, who's caring for him and making sure that he's okay. The very moment Jacob says, all these things are against me, God's sovereignty remains. And he's about to use Joseph to redeem Jacob and his entire family. If we continuously have our eyes on the world around us, it is easy to focus on the ever-growing hopelessness in it. We can just look outside, and if that's all we put in front of our face, we will become overwhelmed with it. It's easy to focus on the division in our culture and see the divide between people. And it's easy to focus on the corruption of the leaders and politics and throughout our nation and say, everything is against me. But if God is on the throne, if he is for us, who can be against us? He is working his sovereign will through every aspect of our lives. That does not mean that life is not hard. That doesn't mean that we don't get our can kicked from time to time and wonder how we're going to get through from one day to the next. But the challenge for us is to look beyond the circumstances. Our challenge is to look beyond the darkness that's all around us. It's not growing. If you've read in Judges and Kings, the world has been pretty dark for a long time. It's just in our face, 
And if that's the only thing you're putting in front of your face, you're going to be consumed by it. And God says, no, I'm still on the throne. I'm still working all these circumstances that threaten to destroy you, and I'm bringing you to a place of redemption, a place of reconciliation, and it's an offer for you, and it's an offer for me. And it's not just a one-time offer, it's every morning, it's every night, it's moment by moment surrendering to the things that we do not see. Culture looks obscured. It looks bent because it's submerged in the waters of sin. Verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Reuben makes an absurd solution to the problem. Take my two sons if I don't bring him back. And Jacob says, no thanks. If anything were to happen to Benjamin... If anything were to destroy him, I should sorrow beyond measure. You should bring my gray hairs down to the grave. So verse four, uh, chapter 43, verse 1 and 2. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back buy us a little food. Prior to this moment, Jacob had the grain that his sons had brought him. Prior to this moment, perhaps he could wait out the famine, but now time has gone on and the famine has gotten more and more severe. It's gotten worse and worse and we see Jacob say, go back. Buy us a little food. It's not until Jacob is brought to the end of that which he believed would sustain him that he willingly goes to Egypt. It's not until Jacob is brought to the end of himself and what he thinks he can do for himself till he willingly enters into God's plan of redemption for him. The Lord sovereign over all of his creation is working of his plan of redemption into our lives today in this moment he is bringing us to the end of ourselves that we might see him that and are we walking by faith are we laying hold of his promises that he gives us in his word that you are adopted that you have been chosen that he elected you from the foundation's world. Do you understand that he has made every concession to be in relationship with you? Or are we distracted by the circumstance over here that threatens to overwhelm us? Are we threatened by this over here that steals our attention away? Everything is not against you, Christian. He's calling you into relationship with him for the first time or the hundredth time. Romans 13 11 says this, 
and do this, knowing the time that now it that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. God wants to use each of us, each of our lives for his glory, and it starts right now. It doesn't matter what happened today, where you were five minutes ago, or where you were an hour ago. He wants to start now. And as we move into this last song, we are each going to have the opportunity to respond. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're one of those that says, if God is so loving, why? If God is good, why? Maybe he's trying to bring you to the end of yourself. He's trying to bring you to a place of your need for him. When I was in college, I had an addiction problem. Didn't matter what it was, I was addicted to it. And I remember standing in my dorm room and looking across the street at the church that was from me to the back of the room. I was not a Christian. I had grown up in the, in the church on Easter and Christmas, so I knew some things, like you go on Christmas and Easter. And I kept thinking, I gotta go to that building but I got to clean myself up first I kept thinking there was something more I had to do and I never went I never went I never stepped inside the church across the street it was only when I got when I was at the end of myself when I was on the verge of homelessness, when I was on the verge of being kicked out of college, when I was on the verge of having everything taken away that somebody extended me a hand of grace and said, will you come to church with me on Sunday? And I told him, no way. I don't want to, but I owe you one, so I'll go. God used that man in the midst of my brokenness to save me. Redemption was just around the corner. Everything is not against you. Christ paid the price so that you could live, so that you could walk freely. And not everybody needs to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of us are getting our can kicked every day as we go to work. We're getting can, our can kicked every day that we go out and we just don't know if we're going to make it another day. We can't see beyond the circumstances. We can't put food in our cupboard. We can't figure out if we're going to be able to pay rent. Come down and receive prayer. And if there are relationships in your life that are strained, relationships that need repair, relationships that you've abandoned and forsaken, God would call us to reconciliation with friends, with family, so that we might demonstrate his love to a lost and dying world. That his glory might shine through us, his people. God uses willing people to accomplish his, accomplish his purposes and his plans. He doesn't need us, but he chooses us. And so if you need prayer tonight, it's a, hard, it's a long walk down, I get that. And it means that I need something more than myself. And God would have us come to that point. It's a humbling thing. But he would call us to that place. So if you need prayer, when we play these last songs, please come up and we'll pray. Let's pray together.
Father God, we do thank you for your word. Your word is truth and Lord, it calls us to repentance. It calls us to look at life through its truth. It calls us to to see you and know who you are. Lord, I ask that you would move tonight, that you would cause every heart that is in need of your touch to respond, to confess their struggles and rally with one another, God. Not that we can rescue one another, but we can encourage and build up, God. Would you be glorified? And it's for you and you alone that we're here. Would you work in this place as we worship you? Because you are worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.